On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about a deep philosophical question in this age of COVID. If you choose not to wear a mask and you end up getting COVID, should you go to the back of the line for treatment? Hmm. We'll follow that one up. We're also going to be chatting about a new tax that is being placed by the federal government on things like Netflix and Airbnb and others. Will this not simply trickle down to the public or is there another way that this will be brought in that won't affect us? Marvin Ryder joins us to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about a Christmas song that you know very well, but you may not know the origin of it or the original lyrics and how it's changed over the years and what the original song was all about. What song is it? Well, stick around. You'll find out. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Should actions have consequences. If you do something, should you be responsible for the outcome of those consequences or the possible outcome of those consequences? I think a lot of people would say, yes, absolutely you should. If you decide to close your eyes and run across a busy highway, you're going to be responsible when something bad happens. Or if you put your hand on a stove that's hot, you can't turn around and blame someone else. That's your behavior. You will be the one who has those consequences to bear. Well, the question then becomes, let's take it a step further. How far does that go? And let's take it one step further than that, even right to today's situation. And when I say today, I mean, not this very day, but recently and ongoing. Should people who refuse to wear masks, COVID masks, go to the back of the line for medical treatment if, for them, it becomes necessary. Hmm. Dr. Arthur Kaplan is the founder of the Division of Medical Ethics at New York University School of Medicine. He joins us now. Dr. Kaplan, thanks for this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You have written about this, and it's a, you've written insightfully about this. Uh, take a moment or two and explain what your position on this would be. Well, there are a lot of people who've said, I don't care if I get sick. It's my choice. Some in uh, the U.S., some in Canada, some in Europe. I don't want to mask. I don't want to socially distance. I want to go to restaurants indoors. I want to attend big events like weddings or parties. And uh, if I get sick, so be it. And my argument is, if you take that attitude, not only are you making putting yourself at risk, but you're putting others at risk, And I think if you want to have that freedom to make that poor, bad choice, then you should be ready, if you do get sick, to go to the end of the line if there's a crunch on resources. That is, we're short on beds, short on people, short on ventilators, short on medicines. Then you should say voluntarily, well, I made a choice. I'll live with the consequences. Freedom has responsibilities. Freedom has obligations. You don't just get a free lunch. Uh, If you make choices, you should be accountable for the consequences. So I think uh, a case could be made that the right thing for people who make those choices is to forego resources if, you know, there aren't enough to go around. Your point, and and listen, I, I believe there are many, many, many people listening right now who are nodding so vigorously they're at risk of whiplash. Um, But I I also believe, and and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, I think our society doesn't do a great job of accepting cause and effect. It seems we, when we do something that we want to do, 
But then something goes horribly wrong. We try to look for an excuse or try and excuse our behavior or not take responsibility. That doesn't seem to lend itself to what you've just said, where I'll then step forward and voluntarily say, oh, don't worry about me. Yeah. Remember, I'm not saying that doctors should push people to the end of the line. They have a moral duty to treat everybody, and I get that. So do nurses. We don't sort out good people from sinners. They just treat everybody as they come in as they have medical need, as they're able to do it. What I'm talking about is take responsibility for your own actions as a potential patient and go to the rear. So just to be clear about that. Why though? You know, well, I mean, let me, let me jump in for a sec. Why? Why? If you have chosen specifically to do this and there is a crunch in an emergency room or in the hospital, why shouldn't a doctor say, you go to the back of the line and I'm first going to treat the people who had no reason to be here except bad fortune? Well, two reasons. One, they swore an oath to just take care of everybody regardless of uh, sin or whatever. They, we take care of prisoners. We take care of uh, enemies in war. We take care of people who uh, smoke. We take care of people who drink. So if actually, if you cleared out all the sinners from hospitals, you'd save a ton of money because there'd only be about <laughs> four or five people left there. Um, so it's a long list of bad behavior that puts us in there. But uh, so that's one reason. And the other is I'm not sure doctors and nurses can really figure out who's good and who's bad anyway. Um, if you get in a situation where there's a bank robbery and the robber shoots somebody and then gets shot by the cops, normally they might take the innocent victim first before they moved on to the, uh, bank robber. I've seen that happen once in a while when the cases are sort of medically equivalent but more to the point, what I'm interested in is not what doctors and nurses are trying to do to ration. I'm interested in, are you ready to take the consequences for your choices? And I think you're right. We often don't do that. And we try to duck it. We try to blame somebody else. or We deny that we did it. I'm thinking somebody decides to go on a hiking adventure up into the mountains and they're not in good shape or they don't bring the right equipment. And then they say, let the public come and rescue me. Send the mm. helicopter, send mm-hmm. the um, you know ski patrol, send whoever. I often find myself thinking, why don't we make those people pre-deposit a sum of money and pay for their rescue? If they're going to be stupid about it, then they ought to pay the cost of uh, their bad choices. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, you, uh, I want to I want to cite a quote that is attributed to you that I think is fascinating. If you are a real believer in liberty, then you have to say, "I'll pay the price." I, I think that's that's brilliant. I just don't know how many people I expect to follow up their belief in liberty with their belief in the following actions. Mm-hmm. Well, I think people want that free lunch and, uh, you know, they often want to be able to do what they want to do. And if they w- drive around on a motorcycle, they don't wear a helmet. They expect somebody to scoop them up off the road and take care of them and the rest of us to pay for the healthcare costs involved with that bad choice. I'm saying again, Either you pay in advance, getting ready to cover those costs. Um, If you want to act like an idiot, do stupid things, okay, but you should be ready to pay the price. Or if you make stupid choices, and by the way, put other people at risk in addition to yourself, then forego uh, resources if they're in a crunch. I'm not saying do it, you know, if there's plenty to go around and everybody can get into the hospital, but as you know, in many parts of North America, the hospital systems are starting to uh, fill up. They're starting to tip over. They don't have enough room for everybody who needs care. 
And uh, that's a place where those who made bad choices perhaps could do the right thing and say, let someone go ahead of me. Okay. And, and I, look, I, I agree with what you're saying. Although, as I've mentioned a couple of times, I, I find it hard to believe that many of the people who hold this philosophy will follow through and actually do that. Could a waiver work? Could we say to people, look, if you don't want to wear a mask, you know, we, I guess we can't really force you here in our city. We have a medical exemption for masks. If you have an, mm-hmm. a medical condition, the, the unfortunate part is it, 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 all you have to have, all you have to do to claim the medical exemption is say, I have a medical condition. There's no obligation for a doctor's owner. You just simply have to declare you have a medical condition. Should we require at least then a waiver and say, Hey, I'm not going to wear it. Me. Yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't bother me to say, here's the condition you can claim it, but understand this has these consequences. I keep coming back to this idea. Mm-hmm. Choices have consequences. We may not enforce them. We may let people off the hook. We may want to turn the other way, but I'm not sure that's the right thing to do in the middle of a plague that's stressing out our doctors and nurses and resources. Let me take this a step further. And you've already touched on this a little bit. Um, I think, again, a lot of people are going to very much agree with the premise that you're bringing forward, but I'm not sure they would be as agreeable if we then took it the next step and said, um, should people who are obese due to lack of exercise go to or voluntarily go to the back of the line Mm -hmm. if they suddenly Mm -hmm. have obesity-related health issues or smokers if they suddenly have lung cancer? Why would that not be a logical step to follow? Well, I think... For one thing, the choice not to mask or not to isolate puts others at risk. Obesity, smoking doesn't, although we did get rid of secondhand smoke, to be honest. We said you can't smoke anymore in a whole lot of places because you were putting other people in danger. So you're penalizing behavior that you don't want to impose burdens on uh, others beside yourself. That's one difference. The other difference is for uh, some of these things, uh, it's not clear how much of a choice they are. So, you know, somebody who's drinking, we tend to think they have an addiction, they have a disease. It's not the same as saying, I don't want to wear a mask because I don't feel like it. Yeah. And, and I, and look, the obesity thing, obviously that, you know, diabetes, there, there are studies that, you know, that, and people who will say, well, that's something you can't avoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a more accurate one. What about someone? And we just had a tragic, tragic case in the city of an accident that a little boy was just killed. Someone charged, were told, was driving recklessly. You drive recklessly, you crash your car, and you hurt yourself. Should you be going to the back of the line? Because now there's an mm-hmm. action. You mm-hmm. could have hurt someone. You hurt yourself. But we've got other people that need treatment. I, and again, these are all, I guess, pegs along the board of where does the philosophy end or how do we apply the philosophy? Yeah, and I get that, and they're fair questions. And I think, again, what we're asking people to do is volunteer to do the right thing, volunteer to make the right choice. I'm not arguing that we should kick them to the rear because uh, the doctor said so or we don't like them or we're going to have a scale at the entrance to the hospital and weigh everybody to see how (laughs) obese they are. I'm just arguing that if you – really want to be a responsible person and you're a big believer in liberty, then carry through on it. Yeah. Th- I mean, really what, what you're arguing and, and I, I keep coming back to it that I, I, I agree with it so wholeheartedly is that we have a hard time, it seems, following through on our own beliefs that we claim absolute, you know, that I'm allowed to do this until things go wrong. And then all of a sudden, wait, wait a second. I didn't really no, I don't mean want to that. be bailed out. I want you to yeah, help me. Bailed out. Exactly. Exactly. That's the word, bailed out. We want that all the time. All it is, the time. Um, go ahead. 
so I think, do I really think we're ever going to implement what I'm talking about? No, I don't. Uh, we're so unwilling to hold people accountable for choices, and we don't like acknowledging that when we do stupid things, if they have consequences, we ought to be responsible for that. But I do think it highlights the point that if you're going to do these things and act in an irresponsible way in the middle of a plague, mm. it's fair game to call you out and say, you're not really much of a believer in liberty. You're not really much of a believer in freedom because you just want it without a price. You want it without the consequences. You want it without asking uh, what's it, you know, the toll that it exerts on the rest of us. And that isn't how it works. Dr. Arthur Kaplan, founder of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. Fascinating topic. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you wrote about it. Thanks for talking about it today. Hey, Dan, my pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Federal government has announced it plans to impose a tax on Netflix, Amazon, Airbnb, a lot of these other big out-of-country companies that to this point really haven't had to pay to operate here. And a lot of people are saying, hey, that's a great idea. It's about time. You want to play in our field? You're going to pay for that right. Make the big rich corporations pay their fair share and contribute to this country. And I think on balance, that is true. But, and here's the big but, a lot of people are saying, well, wait a second, you can do that. But do you really expect them to pay it out of their revenues to say, yeah, we'll take less profits? Or do you just simply expect them they're going to pass the additional costs on to us, the consumers, which would essentially make this an additional tax on the middle class that we keep hearing, well, the government's not going to do that to the middle class. Hmm. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business joins us. Marvin, how are you this evening? Thank you. And I appreciate us talking about this today. We had once talked about doing this yesterday because I've been able to study up on it a little bit more and I'm better informed than I was just 24 hours ago. Well, go then. I'll get, the, the, the green light has been given. Am I being too cynical and our other experts, no. and I'm not counting myself as an expert, but saying this is simply going to be passed down to us as a middle class tax payment? Yes. So you know, I, I studied this up a little bit and I've got to separate out Airbnb from things like Spotify and from... Uh, uh, Amazon Prime Video and from uh, Netflix, because that's a little different thing going on with Airbnb. But let's deal with these other sort of digital services. I can get my music. I can get my video. Today, what happens is I subscribe to Netflix, and Netflix says it's $9.99 a month or whatever the charge is. I pay it, and I get the videos. But if I order cable television from Kajiko, they tell me there's a fee, and then there's this magical thing called HST that is put on top of this. Uh, uh, Netflix has not been charging you any HST because I'm an American company. I don't collect and remit anything to your government. It's a bit like if I go on eBay and order a $20 item from the United States, nobody actually collects HST because it's such a low value. It's able to come into the country uh, free. Now, the Organization of Exporting States, OECD, they had been looking at this and said, wait a minute, it's not really fair that they are providing content kind of equivalent to what a local company provides, only the local company pays a local tax and now the international company doesn't. So we had been talking, there are roughly 20 nations in the OECD, to come to a, a decision on, well, how are we going to handle these cross-national or multinational digital companies? 
And there's been a lot of talk, but very little action. So on Monday, Christia Freeland and her budget said, uh, as of January 1st, 2022, so that's 13 months from now, if we don't get a better deal sorted out through the OECD, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make Netflix and Amazon Prime charge its users uh, HST, collect it and remit it to us. Now, they're doing this not necessarily to generate a whole lot of new revenue, and you are absolutely correct. Right now, the middle class is going to have a new tax if they subscribe to these things, but it's to level the playing field. It's not fair to, say, Fibe TV, that if you subscribe to that service, you pay HST, but you don't pay it on the American service. So it's trying to level the playing field so that you're getting an apples-to-apples comparison, not an apples-to-oranges comparison. Do you, well, a lot of other things to talk about here, but will that work? <laughs> well, I don't know what it's going to do exactly. Now, in theory, Netflix could say to you, you know what, I'm going to keep the price at $9.99, and I'll just take a little chunk of that and remit the, the uh, HST for you. In other words, $9.99 is an all-in price. And on a relatively small amount of money like that, even if it is a, a, a 12% uh, tax on top of this, it wouldn't be that much for them to, to hold on to it. But my feeling is, yes, if this is what they want, and if all the other nations of the world are doing this. Now, if Canada did it on its own, you might see court challenges to say, well, wait a minute, we're an American company, you can't make an American company collect uh, tax on your behalf and remit it. There might be court challenges. But if this is the way the developed world is going, so Germany... Spain, England, France, all these countries are going to do this, then they'll just adjust their model. But you're absolutely right. When the tax goes on, it'll be you and I paying more. But the idea is to also then let the Canadian company play on the same field. So if you're looking at it and say, well, I'm going to buy Netflix because it's only $9, where 5 is $11 with the tax in, now at least the two will be more comparable in the mind of the consumer. Yeah, because I was going to say for a second there, I thought Marvin has been into the eggnog early this year. If he's thinking that these companies are going to just absorb this cost, because I don't think, I mean, is there, are there examples that we can point to of companies that have been hit with levies or taxes by the government that we can see recently who have just said, ah, it's okay, I'll eat that and I won't pass that on down to the consumer? Because I can't remember one. Well, the reason why you can't remember one is we haven't really had a situation like this in any recent memory where suddenly a tax was put in. And so, you're, you're, you know, I'm not saying you're wrong at all. I don't, I don't necessarily think they're going to eat the tax. But if you take an Amazon, the Amazon company, which is primarily we think of as a, this online retailer, they've gotten into this Amazon Prime service. So if I pay you a fee, a bit like Costco, I pay you an annual fee, look at all the other things I can get. So you get you know enhanced uh, shipping, you get it within a day or two days shipping, and so on and so forth. They might very well say, well, tell you what, we'll, we'll just take it out of that fee rather than pass it on to the consumer. We don't really know because no one's ever tried this before. And it, it, again, it's, it's part of trying to get a level playing field in this digital space where borders, dividing lines like that, just don't really play the same as they do in a physical world. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to apologize up front because I try to at least give Marvin a heads up. Not that he needs it. He can talk about anything to do with economics on the spot. But Marvin, I just saw this before I came on the air. And it's a fascinating story about an industry 
that is in huge flux right now. Warner Brothers announced this afternoon uh, it has been making movies um, leading into the pandemic. Things have slowed a bit. But Warner Brothers has just announced that it's going to release its entire slate of movies for 2021. Some big names, the Space Jam sequel, the Matrix sequel, Suicide Squad, Godzilla, all kinds. It is dumping all of its movies, not in theaters, but it's going to be dumping it onto HBO Max so people can watch it from their home just with the cost of their subscription. This, to me, sounds like it has the potential to entirely rewire the entertainment industry, theaters and everything else. So this, this industry could entirely look different when we come out of this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, just I'm going to answer your question. I promise you I'm going to answer your question. But if you don't mind, given our previous segment, can I just finish quickly talking about Airbnb? Just Airbnb. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, absolutely. So uh, the Airbnb story from Monday is just a little bit different. Airbnb has always maintained that it was into space sharing. You had an extra room in your house, so why don't you share it? You have this, why don't you share it? So we'll charge you a fee, but we don't collect any tax on that because people are sharing. They're sharing. And, of course, what we've discovered in Toronto, there are condo buildings where almost every single condo unit someone has bought and is renting it out on Airbnb. So on Monday, what Christia Freeland said, enough, enough. Airbnb, you're really running a hotel service. You've got to pay the same taxes as hotels. And yes, Airbnb is not going to absorb that. Those people renting those spaces are going to have to pay those taxes. But again, it's about evening the playing field. If hotels pay it, if motels pay it, Airbnb, you've got to pay it. And that's what's going on there. Now, to your question about, about the slate of movies, uh, it is a, a worrying concern what we're finding again more and more and more that movie theaters are not the destination of choice. When you and I were just you know young lads, that was a place you'd go on for a date night. You'd take your love of your life and you'd go check out a movie, maybe get a bite to eat before or after. But today, uh, people like the, the, the world of uh, whether it's HBO or they like their Netflix, and they're cocooning at home. They get themselves a big honking TV set, 100 inches or something, so it feels like you're in at least one of those small theaters, and I'll just stay home, and I save the money on the popcorn, save the money on these things. And so right now, these were declared non-essential businesses. Cineplex, Odeon, the Silver Cities, they're, they're not open. You can't watch anything there. And we're getting used to then watching content uh, on our televisions, and there aren't a whole heck of a lot of people complaining now, I would still like to think that when this pandemic is over and we can go back into theaters, there might be people who say, I, I do like the idea of getting out of the house and going and seeing something. And no matter how good your sound is at home, it's not going to be as good as a theater. But it's probably going to take us until a year from now to get through this pandemic. And so in the meantime, I think I give, I give uh, Warner Brothers great credit for saying, well, let's Let's try this other method. Maybe we don't need to do theaters. And by the way, there's one other thing that happens here. Suddenly, I don't share any money with theaters. So you pay whatever fee you pay. I get it as the movie company, and I I squeeze the theaters out. We call that disintermediating. You eliminate an intermediary. And and so you're absolutely right. We are at risk, uh, thanks to the pandemic, of seeing not only a number of stores close, but we may see movie theaters close and never reopen if we get so comfortable uh, watching these things from the comfort of our living room. 
even if we go back, Marvin, I have to think that, and it's been a while. I mean, I don't go out to a lot of movies because I usually work evenings and, and by then I'm kind of done, but you're talking, you know, if you want to go with two of you to go out to a movie and you don't even buy food, you're going to talk 25 bucks, which is more by probably double or almost three times than you would pay for your Netflix, Netflix subscription for an entire month. Even if the theaters come back, I have to believe that they are going to have to be readjusting their prices because people are suddenly going to say, wait a second, why am I paying this much? Yeah, now I'll just help you a little bit, though. Um, uh, Today we now have a lot of streaming services out there, and you might remember that it was just about two years ago that Disney Max or Disney Plus, whatever it was called, was announced. And they said, by the way, if you want to watch Star Wars content, you can't get that from these other places. you got to get a Disney Channel. So now there are people out there saying, well, do I buy a subscription to Netflix and Amazon Prime and Crave and Disney? And all of a sudden, those prices add up as well. So depending upon how the content gets shared, when it, let me try it another way. In the early days, you know, your Netflix got you everything. Well, now if I've got to buy four channels, five channels, six channels, hmm, do I want to do that or do I want to do the other? Consumers have never had so much choice in their life, and it's going to be really interesting to watch. I can't predict which way they're going because these consumers have never had this much choice before, but it is going to change the landscape. There's no doubt about it. I, I'm a perfect example as we go here um, uh, that at the end of this year, um, The Office is leaving Netflix. It's been on there for years. The series The Office, wildly popular. It's going to NBC streaming service. Friends is leaving Netflix. It's going to Crave here in Canada, but Seinfeld that was on Crave is coming to Netflix. I mean, you're exactly right. If you want to watch certain shows, you're now, you know, the funny part is Marvin, when this whole thing started, the streaming thing, it was like, I got to cut the cord of cable because it's way cheaper just to stream. Now you have to stream, as you say, 15 different channels and it's more than your cable ever was. Right. And then, uh, and then the whole question again is video on demand. Do you want it whenever you want it? Or do you like the schedule? How much have you stored on your uh, DVR, your digital video recorder as you go? And, and there's, I think there's also a danger here. You know, the number of hours that we're spending on couches during the pandemic are going up. There are health experts saying that we've become a very sedentary population, certainly here in the last three or four months now that the warm weather is gone. And that's not good for your health. Simply, you know, giving up, getting into the car, going to the movie theater is probably healthy for you than spending four hours on the couch. So we're going to watch, and there's just no doubt that the pandemic is changing behavior. The only question I ask is, is it a permanent change or temporary? And I certainly know there are some people who've gotten so comfortable with the temporary change, they're making noise that they don't want to go back. Theaters are going to once, once again have to advertise. You can go into the back row and make out. You can't necessarily do that in your basement with mom and dad there. That'll, that'll be the way to get kids back in the theaters. Marvin, I appreciate your time today as always. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Uh, yeah, if we, make, if we make theaters the place where you can go and make out again, that'll get the kids back in. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to a piece in McLean's magazine, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is the perfect 2020 Christmas carol. But again, not the one you probably hear or think a lot of. The original version, that one, the one sung by Judy Garland in the movie Meet Me in St. Louis way back in 1944. Now, as we talk about this, remember that year, 1944. Think about what that year meant, what might have been happening around that time. Uh, The author of the piece, and it's a fascinating piece about this carol, 
His name is Jason Markasoff. He happens to be a Dundas guy, which is, you know, great. Um, he joins us now. Jason, thanks for doing this today. Nice to be talking about this uh, on the radio station I grew up uh, listening to. Well, see, there you go. That's perfect. Uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of why this song and this version might be the perfect anthem for this year, as I said, it's worth pointing out that um, the version that we know, that we hear more often than not, is about as upbeat and happy and cheerful and perky and optimistic as any Christmas song out there, out there, which makes some sense because people like that in Christmas songs, obviously. But where did that version, the one we hear all the time, where did that version come from? Okay, so as you said, uh, 1944, Meet Me in St. Louis is this sweet film about uh, Saint, a, f- a family in St. Louis, and Judy Garland plays a teenager named Esther, and she and her uh, little sister Tootie are worried that they're are worried because their family is about to. Uh, move to St. Louis, or move from St. Louis to New York City. Their dad has a big job. And Esther tries to console Tootie with this song that uh, has those lyrics that you talked about. Um, Someday soon we'll all, we all will be together if the fates allow. Until then we'll have to muddle through somehow, so have yourself a merry little Christmas now. That's the original that was in the movie. Um, and it was sung for a few years after that. Doris Day did a cover. Ella Fitzgerald did one that's uh, well sung right now. Um, Frank Sinatra on his first Christmas album, 1948, uh, sang that. But a few years later, 1957... After the war, there's not this melancholy thing about hoping to all be together if the fates allow. Frank Sinatra puts out another Christmas album called A Jolly Christmas. A Jolly Christmas, something like that. I don't have it off. Yes, A Jolly Christmas. Um, and Sinatra did not want to sing a song for that uh, with the line, until then we'll have to muddle through somehow. So he calls up the chief lyricist of the song, Hugh Martin, who wrote it for the movie. And uh, he says, this isn't too jolly. Could you jolly it up for me? <laughs> and back then, as probably for several decades, you didn't say no to Frank Sinatra if you wanted to make it as a songwriter in the music biz. So he jollied up the song. Uh, that line, as most of you will know, on that, that line, until then we'll have to muddle through somehow, is now hang a shining star upon the highest bow, which really means nothing. And if you listen to the lyrics, even in the new version, it means nothing. And he also moved the song into the from the future tense. It was all about hope. Maybe next next year we will, you know, all our troubles will be mild away. He said, from now on, our tra- troubles will be mild away. Um, so he really changed the meaning of the song. And really, uh, I mean, some people, maybe many people who are listening right now are familiar with the original. I don't know that everybody is, though. It's been largely shelved. I mean, it's, it, it's obviously, it still exists. I mean, you can w- still watch the movie. But it speaks, I guess, in some ways to the power of Frank Sinatra, but also because, as I said off the top, we, we like Christmas to be happy as opposed to, as you say, melancholy or something like that. It, we, we've sort of put that one aside for the much happier one. It's a celebratory song. It doesn't talk about muddling through. I think a lot, you know, there, there's probably a, a different types of people um, and how they celebrate Christmas. I have to admit, I'm an objective observer here. I'm Jewish, so I don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> I just, just appreciate the music. Um, but there are those who just want to, you know, who think about, you know, who acknowledge the tough times of Christmas and that it's not that great and we have to muddle through and maybe next year will be better. And then there are those who, you know, want everything to be great. So instead of, uh, you know, instead of 
someday soon we all will be together. Uh, Frank Sinatra made it through the years we all will be together, if the fates allow. Um, it's a much jollier uh, version, and it's, it's, it's a celebratory song, as Frank Sinatra uh, sings it. And that version is what we hear sung by Sam Smith, by Michael Bublé. Um, by most versions, you will hear on most Christmas albums that have been released in the last several, you know, six, seven decades, um, will be that version. Even Judy Garland, uh, when she would perform it on TV shows and such in the 60s, uh, got rid of the muddle through somehow lyric. It, it, and as I said off the top, and you've alluded to it as well, this came out in 1944. I mean, we're right at the near the end of the war, but still, it's been a really rough time. And, you know, if you listen to the lyrics very, very closely, the original lyrics, again, not the perky Frank Sinatra ones, it's pretty clear you're you're talking about people who are thinking about their loved ones, their fathers, brothers, friends, neighbors, who are maybe over in Europe still fighting, hoping that, as you say, next year they'll be back. It's it's really a, I don't want to say bleak, but there's a bleak element to it that these people well, are away and you're just begging that they're going to make it back sometime. It's hopeful. Um, this is, yeah, this is Second World War um, a year earlier. Uh, there was a song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, which was a real anthemic song for soldiers. So I'll be home for Christmas, but only... Was that a, th- a soldier song? Do you think, is that it where was, that yeah. one, the origin? Yeah, it was a sec... I be- if I'm not mistaken, somebody can, can call you and tell me how wrong I am, but I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, it's a 1943 song, if memory serves, um, that talked about, that had that same theme. So this struck that same theme and talked about the muddle. And... How much do you identify with uh, muddling through somehow and hoping to have faithful friends who are near to us, gather near to us once more now um, in this year of the pandemic? Well, it does really fit, doesn't it? I mean, you wrote this in McLean's, but now clearly we don't have a war, thankfully, and clearly we don't have bodies coming home by the plane load like you know or the boat load like in World War II. It's not quite the same, but there are some similarities we can't be together as much we it's it, it, it does seem like it's kind of the perfect song for 2020 if you strip away some of the even just the subtle changes in the lyrics obviously the uh the hang a shining star upon the highest bow melting away muddled through somehow is the biggest difference in the lyrics but even if you look at just the first lines in the song it's you know now we sing it have yourself a merry little christmas make the yule time gay from now on our troubles will be miles away versus from now, you know, in the original version, it was next year, all our troubles will be miles away. And yeah, doesn't, that encapsu- doesn't that encapsulate the feel of right now? Um, you know, this is not going to be the same Christmas for anybody around the world. Um, you know, to, to keep people safe, we have to stay apart. Um, it's tragic. It's sad. It's, you know, and we, I think all of our hopes have been lifted by this news about vaccines. So there is so much hope being put into next year. Um, I think hopes for next year are so anthemic, and I'm sure that that sort of emotion will be very much tied into to uh, New Year's, um, you know, on December 31st as we move as we finally turn the calendar off. What <laughs> has been a godforsaken 2020? Um, <laughs> are there, it, do you know? Uh, do you know if there's other Christmas songs? that have had this treatment done to it that were written in the past for these that, that, that have been, you know, to use Sinatra's term that have been jollied up or, or pretty much the ones we have now are the way they originally started. And I know I'm throwing that one cold at you, but I mean, is this a common thing? 
I'm, nothing struck, comes to mind. I, I'm sure there are some, and I will want to be on your show tomorrow saying, ah, I thought of one. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you're probably asking the wrong Jew that question, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and truthfully, I'm not even sure that with our current reality and it being difficult, uh, you know, I, I, I do like the, the newer version because I, I don't know how much realism and how much dose of cold water, even with, even though, as you say, it's hopeful, um, you know, it's, it's the, the new one is just is, is more upbeat. I mean, it just really is, but I want to point out and I'll let you fill in the lines here. If you can think of it off the top of your head, there was an original, original version that even Judy Garland said, yeah, no, I'm not doing that one. That's just way too dark for a Christmas song. Do you remember the lyrics off the top of your head for the original I, 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 version? I have it in front of me. Um, that's, that's right, Scott. Uh, this is pretty funny. Um, is Hugh Martin, the original, in the original movie, he had a much more maudlin, um, grim version. Uh, the first, uh, it started, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year, we may all be living in the past. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, and that, that's, Merry I, Christmas, I everybody. The, uh, <laughs> the line, faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us no more. Um, and uh, the people who were uh, in the movie, especially Judy Garland, was saying, I, I'm not going to say this to my, <laughs> to my five-year-old sister, Tootie, in the <laughs> film. People will think I'm a monster. Um, so, so Sinatra was not the first... Uh, you know, legendary singer to uh, help uh, get Hugh Martin to soften up his, to jolly up his lyrics. Um, but I think that the, you know, had it been the original, it would have been this grim, sardonic song that it is not now. Um, yeah, no kidding. No kidding. It's and That's the version of the song. If Hitler had been successful and, and had taken over the world, we'd be singing, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last next year. We may all be living in the past. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's just, that just makes you want to go out there and carol and drink eggnog, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm, for, I, you've uh, staked your claim on Team Frank. I'm on Team Judy on, uh, <laughs> on this one. I like, I, I like even my, you know, I, I like my Christmas songs and most of my songs with a little dose of, uh, of, of wistful uh, realism tinged with some hope and uh, a bit of muddle, I guess. I, I would almost any other year, I would say, yes, I agree with you. I, I'm just wondering if this year we've had, uh, uh, maybe we can do a little whist and, 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 but nonetheless, it's a fantastic article. If you know what, if you're looking for something that is, um, you know, Christmassy, but also a little bit of a thing, too many Christmas pieces that are written, they are just, uh, they're just fluff and they don't make you think at all or uh, consider anything. This one is great. It's called, it's the perfect pandemic Christmas song. But we don't sing the right version. It's in McLean's. You can find it online. It's by Jason Markusoff. Uh, Jason, really appreciate you coming on and talking about this today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for inviting me on. It's, um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great piece. It's a great piece about a song that we all sing a lot. And again, many people don't even realize that the lyrics were not where it started. And it is, if you, if you really go back and read and listen to the original. And you can go on YouTube now and look up Judy Garland and the song. I mean, go look up this piece and, and, and do Meet Me in St. Louis and you can hear the original and try not to just think about the music, but think about the time and the place in 1944 and the war years 
and the fact that so many brothers and neighbors and husbands and fathers and men period, mostly men, almost all men at that time were overseas fighting in the war that you didn't know. You didn't know if they were going to make it back at all. It is a very, very, very different Christmas carol. It's a very different Christmas song when you put it in the context of the time, as opposed to just a happy song, but Hey, we're all of our friends are going to get together for Christmas and, you know, drop by the house and have a drink and an appetizer and move on to the next house. That's not what this was at all. It's a fascinating bit of history with a very, very familiar song. Uh, the headline one more time, if you're looking it up on mclean's.ca, it's the perfect pandemic Christmas song, but we don't sing the right version. Go look that one up if you want a good read. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.